think something already good is happening, don't you, as you listen to these songs and hear the instruments play and uh, we sing together. I appreciate so much the work that goes into revival. It's my treat to have the Marysville folks and the Kennard folks and the Raymond folks and whoever else might be here. It's always a treat to have you come and I'm thrilled that you're with us tonight. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'm going to ask you to go to the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I always mention when I deal in this letter that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I always try to remind folks when they read this letter, see how many names is given to identify the Christ. It's, uh, it's amazing how much of a revelation this is of the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to the third chapter of Revelation. I'm going to read the last few verses beginning with verse 14 and I'd like to invite those of you who could and would to stand as I read from Revelation chapter 3 beginning with verse 14 and uh, you will recognize this as the last of the seven churches of Asia that John is writing. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things saith the Amen, that's a name for Jesus. The faithful and true witness, that's a name for Jesus. The beginning of the creation of God, that as well. He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. Shall we pray? Father, one more time as we open your word, we would ask that you would speak to each of us. We are here to hear from your holy hill. We believe that you, who is the message, have a message to convey to us. So may we not only get into the word, may the word indeed get into us. Have your way in the furtherance of the service to your glory and to our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure most of you are quite aware that the writer of this letter was the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the three epistles of John. He writes this, the last book in the Bible, the Revelation. Now he writes this as he was banished on a little island called Patmos. And while he was there going through the torturous time on that little island, the Lord consoled him with a succession of revelations, and he got a vision of the Christ never before seen by mortal man. If I had the time, I could share with you what all he saw, but he re read in the first chapter, he saw Jesus in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Those candlesticks, of course, are the churches of Asia. Jesus was in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, and he began to describe him as best he could. His hair was white like wool, his eyes as a flame of fire. 
Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His voice was like the sound of many waters. His feet was like fine brass that burned in a furnace. And as he wrote, he was trying to describe this Christ that he was there to, to reveal himself to John. He became so overwhelmed by the vision that tells us that he fell at his feet as dead. It was such a shocking vision that he got of Christ that Jesus reached out his right hand and said, Fear not, John. I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead and behold him alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Following the vision, Jesus instructed John to write the things he had seen. He said, write the things that are and write the things that shall be hereafter. And so the dictator of this letter is Jesus himself. The penman writing the letter is John the Apostle. The Holy Spirit is the one that interprets this letter, and the ministers are those of the seven churches of Asia to whom he was writing. Now, those seven churches are listed, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now the Laodicean church. I already mentioned that the Laodiceans was the last of the series of seven churches of which he was writing these letters, and some believe that they represent the last church age of which we now find ourselves a part. The name Laodicea literally means the rights of the people. I think that should prick our ears because if ever there's a day where we demand rights, it's the day in which I and you live. It is the church of the democratic age. They were known for at least three things. They were a manufacturer of clothing, they also were known as a center of finance. They were a very wealthy people. In fact, that's one of the problems they had. They did not find dependence on God because they were so well financed, they took care of themselves and never felt their need of God. They were known for a Phrygian eye salve that was invented during that era. Yet while they were rich in this world's goods, Jesus looks at them and says, but you are poor. In other words, he said, in spite of the finance that you could not purchase the favor of heaven, in spite of the Phrygian eye salve, you said you're blind. He said, in spite of the manufacturing of clothing, he said you are morally naked. In fact, he says, I would that you were either hot or cold, but because he said you're neither cold nor hot, but rather lukewarm, you're very distasteful to me, you're temp tepid to me. In fact, he said, so much so I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now in first chapter, verse 13, it's interesting because we see Jesus in the midst of his church. By the time we come to the third chapter of which I spoke in the very last verse that I read, verse 20, we see Jesus now has been shoved out of the church and he's standing outside knocking on the heart doors of men and women, bidding them to let him come in to their heart and life. He's asking to gain entrance. Now, if you are a student of God's word, you know that John has a beautiful way of portraying Jesus. There's a lot of portraits in John's gospel that gives us a picture of the Christ. He reveals him to us as the great physician. You know that Jesus was the healer of all blind and halt, the paralytic, the leprous, all manner of diseases, and he shows us the portrait of Christ as the great physician. He also reveals him as the servant, servant of man. 
You remember as he came down to the end of life before he walked to the cross, you remember he was trying to teach his disciples those final days, and it said that he wanted them to be servants, and so he himself take a basin of water, and royalty literally takes a rag, bows at the feet of his disciples, and washes their disciples' feet, even the feet of that one who would run off with his feet to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He washed his feet, and then he said, I leave you an example. He shows him as a teacher. You remember in John's Gospel, chapter 3, that one came running to him by night by the name of Nicodemus, and he taught him as he'd never been taught before and told him, you must be born again. He also was the water of life as one day he walked to the well of Jacob, and you remember a lady was there drawing water, and he looked at her and said, if you drink from the water that I shall give you, you shall never thirst again. He was the true vine the true vine of which the branches absorb their spiritual life and become fruitful in life. He showed him as the way. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He reveals him as we're commemorating now these next few days, this Lenten season as the great redeemer with a thorn-crowned head drooped on his sacred breast, hanging on the cross and blood streaming from five bleeding wounds. Now I could give you a lot of other portraits that John reveals to us, but in my mind, of all the portraits that John gives, I believe none depicts a more patient and loving and endearing savior than the one I just read in your hearing of Christ standing at the door. You remember as you read, there are several door scenes in the Bible. Now, Christ standing at the door, we all have seen the picture that Holman Hunt drew. It's called, uh, it's called the light of the world. Is the title of the picture where Jesus stands with an upraised arm knocking on the door with the brambles and bushes all growing around it, and there is no latch on the outside of the door, and his nail-scarred hands knocking on the door. It's an interesting picture if you really want to study it in depth, and I think Holman Hunt captured it. In fact, I think the manuscript of that of that uh, portrait is in St. Paul's Cathedral over in London. But I want to mention to you about the several door scenes. The first door scene quickly I would mention to you is in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the door. And he said it was through him that we must enter to be saved. Now much to the contrary of this world's way of thinking, there's not a dozen different ways to heaven. There's none other name given under heaven among men whereby we might be saved but the name of Jesus. He is the door. He is the only door. And he says if anyone tries to climb up any other way is a thief and a robber. Another picture that is given of Jesus is the good shepherd. I do believe of all the religions that I've studied across the years, no other religion has a shepherd in it. Only the Christian religion, and Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he is the chief shepherd, if you remember. He was concerned about getting the sheep into the fold safely. In fact, when one was missing of the hundred, he left the ninety-nine and went in, in search for that one until he brought him back safely into the fold. Now, a, a sheepfold does not have a door. It rather has an entrance, and that at that entrance, without a door, the shepherd places his body across the entrance to the fold as Jesus himself is the good shepherd and to leave 
that fold, one must step over the prostrated body of Christ and no wolves will ever be able to get into the sheepfold without facing the shepherd. That's an interesting door that I just bring to your attention and Jesus says, I am the door. But here in verse 20 is a second scene of a door. Here he who is the door to life stands at our heart's door knocking, asking to gain entrance into our heart and life. Now, what does that door stand for? Well, as Jesus knocks, it stands for the human will. I read a book some time ago by John R. Stott entitled The Menace of Mindless Religion. And I have to tell you, I think there's a lot of mindless religion going on in the day in which I live. It seems as though we love to have our emotions stirred and we like to come and have an emotional uplift. And I do believe that's all proper and good. We are emotional creatures. And so emotions are a component of our worship with God. But he said the danger is we oftentimes leave our brains parked with our automobiles and come and have a good high and then go back out and pick our brains up and go on home. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about what he said. Now, we are emotional creatures. Emotion is a component of worshiping God. We are also intellectual creatures. And so the intellect must not be ignored. However, I must say to you, man is also volitional. Man has a will. And that will, if you please, when man being emotional and intellectual, when man being volitional as he is, whatever he sees and whatever he hears and whatever he realizes must be validated by an act of the will. J. Henry Jawood said, a man can act his way into thinking quicker than he can think his way into acting. And too many times we sit in a service and we try to compute and try to imagine what all this is about without ever responding to God by an act of the will, which, by the way, folks, is a very detrimental thing to do. Jesus says, he who doeth the will of God will know of the teaching. The act of doing, engaging the will, brings knowledge that otherwise one cannot receive. And so that door can only be open from the inside. It's an interesting fact that God does not coerce us to, to enter our hearts and life. In fact, did you notice this is a highly individualized plea? He says, if any man, if any man, you alone must determine whether he enters your heart and life or not. No one else can make that determination for you. In fact, next to the um, omnipotence, the all power for God that we serve, who spoke this world into existence, next to the omnipotence of God stands the will of man. You say, that's a bit, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it, preacher? No, and I'll tell you why. Deity can hang stars to shine in their silver sockets. Deity can engage moons who will drape themselves with sackcloth and ashes. Deity can kindle the flames of suns. Deity 
can speak worlds into existence. But deity must get my consent to manage my life. He will not do it apart from my consent or your consent. Your, your, uh, consent. He will not force his way into your life or mine, and he will not break down the door of your will to enter in. He will woo us. He will convict us. He will convince us. He will draw us. He'll never coerce us. In that sense, the destiny of a soul rests upon the invisible hinge of the human will. Uh, I remember <clears throat> reading Deuteronomy where the word goes, Behold, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, he says, choose life that both thou and thy seed might live. But it's interesting because, you see, God has sovereignly chosen to limit his own sovereignty to give you and me a limited sovereignty. His sovereignty, his power lies in the words, I've set the parameters. I've set before you life, I've set death, I've set blessing, I've set cursing. Our limited sovereignty lies in the words, therefore choose. I must make a choice. And I'm thankful, as I'm sure many of you have, I made that choice a long time ago. Amen. I want him to be the sovereign God of my life. Gypsy Smith was a great old evangelist of another era, and he said, God stands helpless before the citadel of the will and is unable to enter the door of your heart until you bid him to enter. Now, when you look at the metaphor of the text, the metaphor of the door and Jesus standing, he's not a traveler merely seeking lodging uh, or a fam family member coming to your house, which I'm sure you would be quick to welcome. He's not even a man or a woman of providence that you would be honored to have visit your home. This is man's redeemer we're talking about. This is heaven's king. It is the one that moved the psalmist in the eighth division of the psalm who asked the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him anyhow? Or the son of man that thou visits him? And I think it's reiterated again in the Hebrew letter in chapter two, what is man? Across the years, I've asked myself that question time and time again. What is there about little man that creeps and crawls on the footstool of Mother Earth that you even bother with him anyhow? Man who is vile and wicked, man who literally blasphemes God in every way. What is he about man that you care for him? I came to the conclusion that there is never a moment in your existence or my existence that you and I are ever out of his mind. He is as cognizant of your presence as whatever you're going through, your problems, your, your pain, your suffering. He is as mindful of that as a mother would be mindful of a little baby that she laid in a crib in the next room. In other words, we should be welcoming him with open arms. But notice, interestingly enough, he's not the one being sought. He's the one seeking. He's the one that stands patiently at the door of our heart. He's the one that knocks gently. He's the one that speaks softly. He's not banging on the door. He's not peering through the windows. He stands softly and speaks if any man 
hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. By the way, the hands that knocking, that's knocking on your heart's door are scarred. The feet that stands in front of that door has nail prints in them. He shed his blood, all of it, by the way, that you and I might be redeemed. For without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There was a man some years ago, some of you a little older will remember William Jennings Bryant. Uh, Williams Jennings Bryant was from Nebraska. I think three different times he ran as a nominee for the President of the United States. And he fought very valiantly in Tennessee with the courts when they were trying to, to insert this evolutionary teaching in the uh, students' curriculum. This man one day, very well known, a very prestigious man to say the least, was boarding a train. And another man was boarding the train who was riding about this story, and he said when this man walked on the train, he said people stopped, they recognized him, and all of a sudden, he said they laid down their newspapers, said they turned around and to catch a glimpse of the great William Jennings Bryan. Some even moved their luggage so that they might invite him to sit with them. He said they did all that for him, but they didn't do a thing. When he walked on, he had to find a place to sit down. But he said, when the train finally reached its destination, he said, I also noticed when the conductor came down the line, he asked for the tickets. And he said, not only did I have to give him my ticket, William Jennings Bryant had to give a ticket as well. One day, folks, all of our prestige, all of our prominence, all of the power we think we may have will mean nothing. The only evidence that will be necessary is, are we covered by the blood? Amen. By the way, there's only one of two places that blood can go. That blood will either be over our heart or it'll be under our feet. I don't want to trample the blood of Christ under my feet. I want it to be over my heart. Now, there's a third scene. Dealing with the door, it's found in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, but let me just read this statement. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, you begin to stand without and knock on the door, Lord, Lord, open to us. He shall answer and say to you, I know you not from whence you are. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, there passages in the book that stagger the mind to comprehend them. This is one such passage because the warning now is over and the invitation has been withdrawn and now they are begging open up and let us in. In fact if you read it further it said we've been at your meetings we've heard you talk we've heard you teach. He said I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. If we do not open our heart and welcome him in, the day will come when he will finally not invite us anymore. He makes it clear that my spirit will not always strive with man. There is a word, we don't use it normally, but it's the word synergism. Synergism, of course, is the cooperation of two or more things. Now, theologically or spiritually speaking, it's the human will 
cooperating with the divine will or the Holy Spirit. Opposite of synergism is antagonism. We know what that means. I can tell you, if one continues to ignore his knocking at the heart's door and refuses to open the door to him, synergism will turn into antagonism and the heart will become fixed and he will then walk away. That's why these desperate calls that are made in the word, turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? You know, there's an area that it's not dealt with much, and I don't deal often with it, but because it's in the context of where I'm speaking, I want to just mention every day we are living, every day we're walking in this life, our character is becoming more and more fixed. And I should say either for the good or the bad. Our character ultimately will reach a state of fixedness to where it will never change. Now when that day comes, I remember it was C.S. Lewis who says when we finally reach the total state of fixedness apart from God, he said even in hell, speaking hypothetically, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, even if in hell God would offer man mercy, he'd have no disposition to accept the offer. His heart is fixed. Oh, by the way, we see that, don't we? Little boys and girls are very quick to respond when they hear the story of Jesus. That's why it's so important to get little boys and girls in church early. And they get a little older, it gets a little more resistant. As we get a little older, it gets even more resistant. And we can reach a time where we can just poo-poo what the preacher said. Oh, yeah, we've heard that preacher. I, I'm not interested. Thank you. And walk on. I mentioned Sunday morning when I was here, the verse in John chapter 3. The last verse of the chapter, in fact, 36. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Let me ask you a question tonight. After all Jesus has suffered, all the humiliation, all the ridicule, all the mock trials, all the beatings, all the cat of nine tails that left his back riveted, the old rugged cross splintering log laid on his back, after all the nails driven in his hands and feet, after the suspension between heaven and earth, between two thieves, all the jeering, all the mocking, and then crying like he never cried before when he looked out to the Father as the world was draped in blackness like the universe was covered with crepe. He looked up and God turned his back on him and he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would he belittle himself even to this very moment to stand outside our door and knock and beg entrance? Why would he do that? I want to tell you one reason why. He understands the lostness of a soul. He experienced it on the cross. He knows what it is to be abandoned of God or forsaken of God. And he's doing everything he can to keep us from going that route. 
Let me ask another question. Not the question what, how, why he endures this. How long would you endure it? I've thought about this so many times as I can depict, depict Jesus knocking, knocking, standing, waiting, pleading, speaking, asking, begging, open the door. He knows they're in behind the door. <laughs> How long would you stand at anybody's door and knock knowing they were there but wouldn't open it? I know. I wouldn't waste my time. And yet Jesus, of all people, who's trying to prevent you and I from suffering eternal damnation, which is still a part of the word of God, is willing to suffer such humiliation. And let me tell you, his suffering didn't end at the cross. It's continuing to this very day. Oh, by the way, in concluding, he's persistent, isn't he? If you notice that he's not an occasional visitor. He says, behold, I stand. That word stand speaks of a stability and a steadfastness and a determination. I stand at the door and knock. Why does he do it? He not only wants to share his life with us, he wants us to share our life with him. That's why he says, if you open the door, I'll come in and sup with you, and you can sup with me. I've often thought about the two on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, you know, and they were so distraught because Jesus, the one they thought would be overthrow the Roman yoke and establish the earthly kingdom, and now they saw him die so ignominiously on the cross, and they went back about six miles to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were distraught, and they were discouraged, and all of a sudden, the risen Christ appeared in their midst and said, what are you down their mouth for? <laughs> and so their eyes were fixed that they didn't know him. And then he revealed to them all the teachings of the prophets about him. I've never, I never read that, but what I think, what it must have been like to be in the school of Christ where Jesus was conveying all that the prophets had said about him. And finally he got to, the, got to Emmaus, walked all that way with him, got to Emmaus, and it said he would have gone as though uh, he was continuing on, and they stopped him and said, come on in. We walked a long ways, come in. Stay with us a while. And then the guest became the servant. It said Jesus took bread and broke it and gave to them. And it said their eyes were opened. And it said he vanished from their midst. They said our hearts burned within us as he was talking to us. The good news is, folks, he's not wanting to be an intruder in your life. He wants to come and be a part of your life. You sup with him, and he sups with you. He's our burden bearer. He's our burden sharer. So the question I ask, finally, is this. I'm not really interested in the fact, well, I go to church. Everybody should go to church, and many do go to church. I wouldn't ask that question, do you go to church? Do you live a decent life? I preach to most of the time, decent people. In fact, I tell my wife I pe preach to the best people in the world. The question is not, do you accept the Bible as the word of God? If you didn't, you wouldn't be here. 
the question is not, do you really believe is a, there is a God? Or, the real question I ask tonight is which side of the door is Jesus on? Which side of the door is he on? And I want to tell you something. He can't be inside without you knowing it. <laughs> when he comes, you know he's there. That's good news, isn't it? He makes it real to you and me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in with him, sup with him, he with me. I'd like for you to stand with me and bow your heads. As Brother Tom comes, I'm going to give you that opportunity tonight if perchance there's anyone here who's never opened their heart's door. I want you to realize this is the Passion Week coming, upcoming. This is Lenten season. This is the time when we commemorate and celebrate the one who died for us. And I, I assure you, he died for you if you were the only person here.